Shit Platypus Says, Episode 44. Welcome to another episode of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary of the left. My name is Andreas Wintersberger, I'm one of your co-hosts. We have a two-part episode for you today. In the first part of the episode, our co-host Pamela Nogales sits down with Leila Michui. Leila Michui is the co-host of Red Star Radio Podcast. They sit down to discuss the latest developments regarding the trucker protests in Canada. And they talk about the left's reaction to it, the role of civil liberties in working class organizing, as well as what sort of missed political opportunity, if any, these protests represented. For the second part of the podcast, Berlin-based Platypus member Tamash and I talked with Peter and Noemi, two members of Sikra. Sikra is a leftist group in Hungary, which was founded in 2019. We discussed the situation of the Hungarian left with regards to developments within the international left of the past decade, as well as with regards to the upcoming Hungarian parliamentary election in April this year. We also talked about the deeper history of the left in Hungary and specific challenges within the quote-unquote post-socialist countries in Eastern Europe today. If you want to find out more about Platypus and our worldwide regular activities, go to our website platypus1917.org. That is www.platypus followed by the numerals 1917.org. Enjoy! Leila Mashui? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. She's the co-host of Red Star Radio Podcast. We'll link everything in the episode description that we mentioned today. And she'll be joining me to discuss the trucker protests, the convoy, which is now over. Over, but never forgotten. Over, but never forgotten. <laughs> so before we get into it, how did you come to the left? Uh, what were your formative experiences on the left? What organization, people, thinkers have left an imprint in your perspective? You know, I actually came uh, to Marxism through an interest in climate change. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of way on the other side of all that stuff now. But I got really interested in degrowth economics and that whole field. And I started reading about it. And I uh, eventually realized that you couldn't like degrow the economy. <laughs> and so I was like, well, how are we going to save the world from climate change? And then uh, I think my entrance into reading Marx was via quote unquote eco-socialism. I just read like initially a lot of stuff a lot of like smaller pamphlets and stuff from Marx. Um, someone I really used to like a lot was David Harvey, actually. Mm -hmm. um, I read a ton of his work. And so now I think that my most, the thinker that impacts me the most is probably Ernest Mandel. Mm -hmm. Simon Clark has had a huge impact on me. Yeah. Do you work with uh, left organizations in Canada or what's your, the way that you participate in the left? I used to actually, but uh, I, I don't anymore. I had a bit of a bad experience with a few organizations. At this point, I would love to join something if something was available. But especially since I I took like a bit of a turn with my politics, like I kind of drew closer to a Leninist interpretation of how to do politics and things. Uh, there isn't a lot that kind of agree with that direction in Canada. Mm -hmm. So I know that you went down to the protests in Ottawa 
and I want to know what you what were your impressions why were people there Um, what did you get from that experience when I saw that finally there was uh, some kind of movement that was forming at least to resist some aspect of the vaccines I got very excited as soon as the vaccine came out I made a very an early decision that I simply wanted to wait until the trials were done and then I would make a decision as to whether or not to take the vaccine and so initially just started with the truckers um, going to Ottawa to protest their own mandate. I immediately donated to the GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw it was growing really quickly, I was like, I donated again. Like, <laughs> no second thoughts. I thought it was great. I was like, yes, freedom. <laughs> Click. <laughs> you know, you know and, and then it became this thing where, you know, you could have your bank account yeah. frozen if you had donated. Anyways, so um, when it finally arrived to Ottawa, where I live, I was super excited. I had that point become about uh, dropping all of the restrictions across Canada with regards to the vaccines. And and uh, I went the first day and it had been weeks and weeks of the media warning everyone that it was a racist, like dangerous protest full of like white supremacists, etc. And uh, I had a great time. Like it was um, super positive. There was families everywhere, small children. And I was keen on trying to understand, you know, the class composition of the protest. Can I understand this as like a mass movement or something that has proletarian support? One of the first questions I had on my form, my formula was, are you a trucker? Because I expected everyone there to be a trucker, but I actually didn't meet any truckers on my first day. I met people that worked in all different kinds of industries. I met people that, uh, tons of francophones, I had to speak French to them because they didn't speak English um, from all you know regions of Quebec that don't speak English. So um, that's quite rare to see in, uh, in a large protest in Ottawa to bring those two mm-hmm. sides of Canada mm-hmm. together. And yeah, I saw, as I said, I saw tons of uh, families with very young children who were out there protesting whatever it was that they, was most bothering them. So tons of families that were protesting masks for kids, yeah. for instance, like that was that was their issue that they that really bothered them. And most of the people I talked to were indeed vaccinated. They were happy with the vaccination, but they just wanted the restrictions over. And they just agreed with the overall message that if you don't want to take a vaccine, you shouldn't be forced to do so by your employer, by the state. The media coverage didn't match up my experience on that day, nor on the many other days that I went. I went almost every day, several hours at a time to see what was going on. I only ever had very positive interactions with people. What were some of the other questions that you asked people? You said you went with a list of questions. Yeah, I asked them, like, are you a trucker? And then if they were a trucker, I wanted to find out if they were owner operator or an employee. Mm -hmm. But I didn't actually meet any truckers that first day um, or the second day where I asked this question to the protesters writ large. If they weren't a trucker, my question was, okay, what do you work for? Like, what do you do? And what are, what's your political orientation? What did you learn? The political orientations were all over the place. I, I think there were, I, the majority did answer something that was more of a conservative spectrum in Canada. But a lot of people were just like, I don't know, I'm just going to wait and see. I'm, I'm not sure. People told me they were anarchists, so they just didn't believe in government, you yeah. know. So it was a very, um, it was very mixed bag of different political orientations as one might expect. Yeah. The update now, since we're speaking on the 3rd of March in Canada, now after the Emergencies Act was invoked, the border blockades have been cleared. Overseas, the Paris convoy was dispersed. The convoy to Brussels has been halted. And last I heard, the American convoy to D.C. seems to be petering out. Trudeau has now ended the emergency I think within a day or two of the parliamentary vote on the act's use. So mission accomplished. And now (laughs) Ukraine is top priority. So we're speaking after the fact. Um, Is there anything left of the protest at the moment? What's what's going on now? There are still some protests that are going on on the streets of Ottawa and Toronto, at least I've seen, um, against the mandates. Because, of course, the, the truckers were unfortunately unsuccessful in dropping their own mandate. And a variety of mandates and restrictions still exist across Canada um, in various workplaces. They are slowly but surely the provinces are announcing the end of these things. But so far, the federal government has not announced an end to the interprovincial vaccine passport system we have so currently if you're unvaccinated you can't take a plane or train to go to say ontario to vancouver or the uh, the mandates for the truckers which is also under their jurisdiction so there are still some fairly large protests 
um, that are going on still. Uh, but yes, in terms of the trucker protests, the city's actually downtown Ottawa, a big portion of it is still blockaded to prevent any trucks from getting in there. <laughs> Same thing goes last time I checked in Toronto too. So, but yeah, unfortunately, I mean, it's petered out from the, the from the forefront of the imagination of the Canadian population, I would say, but I, the issues are still there and they're still um, agitating people at a lower level. So throughout the pandemic, the new democratic party, the NDP, the Canadian social Democrats, as well as the union tops in the Canadian Labour Congress and UNIFOR, as well as the leaderships of the Quebec Union Federations, all supported the lockdowns. How should, in your opinion, how should the left have opposed the lockdowns? Like, What is at stake in that fight? No one can say for sure what the best thing to do, to have done, rather, to deal with this pandemic. But at the the end of the day, like it's a true statement to say that risk is something that should be democratically determined. Like how much risk are we willing to put up with to do X, Y, Z? So if we didn't want as a society to run the risk of catching and dying from COVID-19, maybe. And if we thought that the benefits of the lockdowns outweighed their harms and their inconveniences, we could have come to a decision as to to do a lockdown. But the kind of lockdown that the left was looking to implement or or seeking to have the government implement would have never come from the capitalist class and the state the locking people out of work and ending all work mm-hmm. and the majority of work of productive labor would have ended capitalism which capitalists won't do they're never gonna stop value generation for the vast majority of workers they were going into work every single day from day one wearing a mask right that was the productive thing that they were given So in my mind, um, the left had to do a political analysis of the situation to ascertain, okay, is a a literal general strike for several weeks possible? Is it politically feasible at this time to do that, to send all of the productive workers home and force what they think the will of the working class would have been with regards to managing this pandemic? But they essentially just pushed for harsher and harsher lockdowns as they were possible under capitalism, which just meant harsher restrictions on our social lives, harsher restrictions on our access to public goods and services, and more entrenchment, uh, retrenchment on civil liberties and rights, which I think is unforgivable. The left isn't really formed to do that analysis and take a brave stand. I guess this is a good bridge to the next question, which is about this issue of civil liberties and the left. At the time of the parliamentary invocation of the Emergencies Act, two-thirds of Canadians supported the extraordinary powers by the government. And the Liberals put the opposition in a situation of forcing an election if they defeated the legislation. So every NDP MP voted for it, even the quote-unquote left ones. And in an interview with Max Blumenthal earlier uh, in February, you said that freedom of association, freedom of movement, freedom of your own medical decisions, having freedom from decisions of the boss are important for the working class. You said, are they the end-all and be-all? No. But is it a small way of asserting these rights against the ruling class? Yes. So could you talk about this relationship between liberal rights and a socialist left? Like, what is the relationship and what would it mean to stand by these liberties while still fighting for socialism? Yeah, so the way that I see it is not so much uh, that there is some kind of intrinsic value to these rights. I, I think that at best, they're they're utilitarian. So they are tools to reach a broader goal and you know do i do i think that we have a situation of true consent in capitalism in capitalism for anything you know not not really like there we don't have free association of people right there's always some undercurrent of coercion that goes on in capitalism but um to push it against that and to create you know little realms of freedom um using these rights that are accessible to people because we live in a liberal paradigm, using that heuristic, it gets to this question of self-determination, which is really the core of socialism 
in my opinion. And so, yes, I think it is very important to fight for civil liberties and rights because it gets closer to this question of self-determination. Like, so first through this liberal lens, but then eventually it gets to bigger questions of, of self-determination for the class as a whole. So you said also in this interview with Blumenthal that there were no more organizations in Canada that can be said to represent a working class perspective and characterize the leadership of the trucker protests in terms of a petty bourgeois leadership. You talked about the people there as having a quote-unquote mixed consciousness. Some of the American left, like Jacobin, for example, has been turning itself into knots, trying to disprove the quote-unquote working class character of the protests, noting that some Mm -hmm. of these people own their own trucks and thus they own the means of production, so it's not a real proletarian issue, etc. So I, I wanted you to talk about this working class perspective but versus a petty bourgeois perspective like what kind of working class social discontents were present in the protest and what should the left have done to lead like what kind of leadership is missing today in your perspective i've said this a few times but i'll say it again like i don't say petty bourgeois leadership in a negative like as if as a pejorative um i mainly use that according to its marxist um, its its main kind of value in Marxist analysis in my mind is just to help us understand the potential horizon of such a movement. So, um, and I, you know, I see things very much through the lens of Simon Clark. I see things as everything is a result of class struggle. And so every struggle has proletarian content in it. Um, nothing is free of the proletariat, right? It's always a struggle between the bourgeoisie, like the social relation on which our society is built off of is capitalist social relation, which is um, intrinsically an antagonistic relationship between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And the petty bourgeoisie is, of course, a middling layer, which is created by the bourgeoisie and used to essentially manage the society for them because they are numerically very small. The proletariat is numerically very large. And so they need like this class of intermediaries to help them manage the whole thing. So the petty bourgeoisie historically has always been a wavering class. It can take one side or the other. And what side it takes depends on the strength of the proletarian aspect. And a movement has the potential to become a revolutionary movement if the proletariat is able to take leadership of that movement, right? And so we've seen several instances of this happening. I think, you know, Hungary 1956 is a great example. And then you see, you know, the the petty bourgeoisie and even some... Uh, members of the armed wing of the states, the police, etc., join the proletariat uh, in a circumstance of true of a true workers' revolution in the process. So I, I think that like just dismissing something because of its leadership is not the right way to go. In my mind, you have to assess it for its its holistically, like understand okay what's being fought over, who's coming out for it, on what basis was it organized, and and things of that nature. I don't actually think that every trucker who is an owner operator is is petty bourgeois. I think that category itself is very ambiguous. But I think that the leadership for sure, when like those of them who were able to stay for several weeks, take time off work, and those of the pe- the people who were kind of running the whole thing from the top, you know, the definition of wage laborer is that you're um, not able to remove yourself from wage labor for any significant amount of time, right? So they're able to do that. I, I think, you know, that... They're kind of exiting the category of of wage laborer at that point. Um, But that doesn't mean they're wrong. On the criteria of is there fighting for, is it of proletarian interest? I thought definitely yes. And I thought most significantly they had garnered a huge amount of proletarian support. People were really coming out. Those protests were huge. Like I would say people were saying a million people. I don't know. I think it's a bit of exaggeration, but I think at least um, several, like at least 100,000 people, which is very middle of winter, negative 30 degrees, people coming with their families and kids. And they would come, um, they would kind of come in the weekends when they were off work, right? But there was always a constant flow of people going towards the truck, truckers giving them everything they needed, like gas and food. And there was just, they had like a, you know, even when the the police force in uh, Ottawa threatened to arrest people carrying food and gas supplies to the truckers, people continued doing it. They defied the police. You know, that shows that these different aspects show the proletarian character that it is significant in this in this class struggle, right? And so there was a genuine disenchantment and um, anger around these things. 
people didn't like that their lives were being like completely controlled unjustifiably by the government for two years. And so in my mind, I think the left, you know, such as it is, what they could have done is um, put out the rallying call and uh, tried to lead the way much like the truckers did, the petty bourgeois truckers and the organizers that helped lead this. Um, they, you know, as I said, I think in one of the podcasts that I gave on this, like, it's just like Lenin described why the Bolsheviks were successful in the Russian Revolution, because they, you know, everything was in place, right? And so Lenin said power was just lying in the streets and the Bolsheviks just picked it up, right? And I think to a large extent, I think that's what happened with the truckers too. Like they weren't, I don't think they were expecting this kind of reaction. And when I was going and talking to people, like most people didn't know who their organizers were. They had, you know, no no idea of the schedule of things, of events that were going on. Like they just came because they are answering the rallying call. So I think the left could have put out the call. They could have, as Marxists, you know, figured out a way of transferring the leadership from themselves to the proletariat more generally. You know, it's an ambitious goal, but I think that would have really helped, you know, like I, getting... You know, more, you know, for instance, doing some going to the factories. We have a lot of big factories in Iran, Ottawa, including an Amazon factory, going out to the workers there, telling them about what's going on, asking them to come on board, taking asking them to take a leadership position of their own, like maybe doing a walkout and support things of that nature. Right. Extending the struggle. And that's yeah. not something that um, the political leadership of this instance wasn't it's not within their theoretical framework to do. Right. So. Yeah, I think that something you brought up on your podcast was an article in The Militant that pinned one part of the working class against the others. Well, you have these reactionary (laughs) truckers, they're like the fascist conservative right-wingers, and they're not really making working class demands. And then you have these real, these other, these real (laughs) proletariat people, you know, and they want better wages. And so, like, that's where the struggle is. Don't pay attention to these people. These people are reactionary, as opposed to uniting the working class as a class. Just like Lenin also said, you're not going to get any kind of a social revolution anywhere without the petty bourgeoisie and without the backwards element of the working class. The point of socialist leadership is to guide this mass of people towards a, a socialist horizon. And you can do so if the leadership is proletarian. So in Lenin's case, or if Hungary, for instance, like the, the Soviets took the lead there um, and they were kind of calling the shots and, you know, it was unsuccessful for a variety of reasons, namely because it was crushed. But like that's that's a that's a, should be the point like it shouldn't be to yeah as you say break up the class into like these are the good proletarians and these are the bad proletarians and all oh, these guys are just fascist petty bourgeois like the militant for instance was approved was approving of the truckers who were fighting over lost wages right um mainly based in toronto and they were saying yeah that's the true struggle that people should have come out for right yeah. and then they were saying and, you know, oh, it's just too bad that these truckers are <laughs> going out for uh, the mandates, like, which are annoying. But, you know, and they added this this part in their piece where they were like, you know, the, the, the labor movement should be leading the way and vaccinating people like we should be encouraging the workers to get vaccinated. I'm just surprised that the mm-hmm. militant knows the will of the working class when it comes to vaccination. And I'm just surprised that they feel like, you know, they're, they, they're able to make a determination as to whether or not this vaccination campaign, as it's been rolled out and under the circumstances that it's been rolled out, is actually the best thing for the working class. Um, instead of letting the working class itself make that determination through open debate and open conversation. They're just essentially saying that, number one, this is not of concern for the working class, which I disagree with. I think that questions of wages and questions of self-determination over your bodily autonomy as against the state, as against the employer, pivot around the same question of self-determination. Who governs? Who governs myself? Who governs my class? Right. Like these kinds of questions. But number two, like saying that these people don't deserve a place in the political process. That because they are racist, because they are uh, far right, because they are blah, 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 they don't deserve to be to have their opinions seriously considered in open debate, in an unbiased way, in a political process. And I disagree with this. I think mm-hmm. if you're, you know, every person should have their, if it's a stupid idea or if it's like actually racist, it should be, we should be able to quickly dismiss it in a situation of open debate amongst uh, the workers since Lenin has been brought up so much, 
I thought I would take the opportunity to read just a brief quote from his um, discussion on self-determination. I also thought that it would be good because you said earlier that you thought that the core of, of socialism was self-determination, so that would allow us to kind of wrap up our conversation with what that yeah. means. So Lenin wrote in 1916 on the discussion on self-determination summed up. The socialist revolution in Europe cannot be anything other than an outburst of mass struggle on the part of all and sundry oppressed and discontented elements. Inevitably, sections of the petty bourgeoisie and of the backward workers will participate in it. Without such participation, mass struggle is impossible. Without it, no revolution is possible. And just as inevitably, will they bring into the movement their prejudices, their reactionary fantasies, their weakness, slit errors. But objectively, they will attack capital, and the class-conscious vanguard of the revolution, the advanced proletariat, expressing the objective truth of a variegated and discordant motley and outwardly fragmented mass struggle, will be able to unite and direct it. I wonder if you could maybe expand on the way that you've been talking about self-determination as the core of socialism, and what this has to do with your characterization of the will of the working class? Because what strikes me, though, in that quote from Lenin and the way that you've been talking about the backward elements among the working class, that there are working people who do have backward ideas. And like, what is the role of socialists in shaping the class movement in the way in which Lenin talked about it? I do view these things very much through a Leninist lens, unfortunately, I guess. Um, but So this is the way I see it. So Lenin theorized that you needed to create a party that could exist at a level that was of a level of abstraction that was above the trade union level, because that level of abstraction is the level of abstraction that the bourgeoisie operates on. So the political level, essentially, you have the whole picture. And so you could create a objective view of what was going on, right, to some extent. So you could get the facts, you know, you could be like, okay, like this is the, this is what's going on with the economy. This is what's going on with geopolitics right now. These kinds of facts or with regards to this pandemic. Okay, here's how dangerous this virus is. Here's, you know, uh, the, the benefits of lockdown, the, the harms of lockdown, etc. But the goal of the party was not to dictate to the proletariat what to do, etc. It was to collapse this objective assessment of a situation with the subjectivity of the working class, right? And to bring these two things together. And Lenin has an idea of how to do that in his his works, which is um, which is through this dialectical articulation between the leadership of the of the party and the working class as a whole, and this fluid movement between the two where one is feeding the other constantly. You know, people are going in and out. You're, 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 you're forming the working class. Your um, leaders from the working class are emerging. Then they go on to take leadership of the party. And this constant, like, dynamic movement that was very possible in the Russian revolutionary, in the revolutionary situation in Russia because of the illega- illegality and the, um, uh, the circumstance of that struggle. You know, whether we can reproduce that outside of that, it's a good question, but besides the point. So I think that uh, this question of self-determination is is kind of secondary to this question of the party, this question of what to do, because self-determination is only attainable after the revolution, truly. When when the working class is made the ruling class, then these questions can, can actually be fulfilled in any meaningful sense. But in the process of forming the class for the revolution, as Lenin said, you are teaching them to rule. You you are teaching them through some democratic processes, such as they are, as limited as they are. Uh, you're teaching them through political struggle, through struggle at work. You're teaching them how to rule and through also the political education, which is a huge role the party must play. Um, you're, you're, you're enhancing their abilities culturally as well. The bourgeoisie is very lucky because when they were waging their struggle against the aristocracy, they did experience a lot of self-rule. They did create these pockets of autonomy from the aristocracy and they became a very cultured class, you know, and they were running their own businesses and they were um, they had created their own associations apart from the aristocratic governing class. And and they were able to become a ruling class through that process. They, They taught themselves how to rule. The proletariat doesn't have such a chance. Right. So the party is the venue through which we can we can do that. Right. But if the workers are never taught to even consider these questions. 
even consider the broader questions of self-determination and how to get true self-determination. And this is something that the workers in Russia um, arrived at via the Soviets. Um, so right. they were struggling for various wage, various work, working condition stuff. And they were starting to come up to limits as to what they could achieve at the trade union level and even at the Soviet level. And then they started to look out to the political level because they realized that they needed a political solution. And that's why all of these great, you know, socialist parties of various kinds emerged in Russia. And they're all kind of competing for, you know, let's say market share. And the Bolsheviks, though, with their slogan of all power to the Soviets, so basically giving power to the proletariat, that's what won them over in the end. And there was the Russian Revolution, which I, I deem as a true proletarian revolution. So it's, like, so it's just, you know, this question of self-determination is, is secondary in a way, in a dialectical sense, to the question of gaining power and um, converting, like having this qualitative shift, this revolutionary moment. But in the process of getting to that revolutionary moment, you will be creating spaces and creating more um, freedom and more room for self-determination to occur and to be possible, right? So it's, a, it's, this, it's this great like dialectical process like that, you know, will kind of go in fits and starts and there'll be like two steps back, one step forward type situations. But if you have like a good strong party with good leadership, you can um, grasp that positive moment and lead to that qualitative shift, right? Like in every in any kind of contradictory moment you have a in the Hegelian logic of things, you have these positive moments which you can grasp if you're smart enough. And and Lenin, for instance, was someone who could who was able to do that, right? In Russia. So um like it's not a question of like this is possible right now. It's through that struggle that innovation occurs. It's through that struggle that, you know, leaders are formed. And so, you know, when you have a bourgeoisie, as we do currently, that is up against a, rel a relatively weak working class, you can see that they're quite weak themselves and they don't have any, you know, motivation to be smart. And so they just resort to very brute methods of achieving their goals and themselves like they don't, you know, the leadership that they dig up for them, the political leadership that they dig up for themselves is very unimpressive. And then the, the left complains that the workers are, are, you know, coming under the leadership of quote unquote far right people completely misnomer anyways like the foreign in Canada is basically like some random libertarian French Canadian guy who got kicked out of a conservative cabinet because he left some confidential documents in his girlfriend's house like come on <laughs> this is a joke it's not it's not a serious far right you know but um yeah like it's they are the ones I failed to offer that leadership which is really their only job <laughs> like do intellectual and political work yeah <laughs> they suck at it yeah yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> best of luck uh, out there in Ottawa, turning a new page, starting a new chapter on the left. And thank you for chatting with me about the trucker protest and the socialism in general. Well, thank you for having me and uh, apologies to the listeners for my ranting. Yeah, it's, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> They're used to lots of rants. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Bye. Bye. Today, uh, for our podcast, I have with me on the Zoom call Peter and Noemi from the Hungarian leftist group Sikra and Platypus member Tamas, who is currently based in Berlin. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Hi there. I'd like to ask you to please introduce Sikra a bit. Sikra is a political group mainly consisting of uh, young left-wing people. It is based in Hungary, but we have members also in bigger Hungarian cities. Sikra started as a kind of electoral platform in 2019. It supported a few selected uh, candidates uh, during the uh, municipal elections. 
we selected these candidates based on, on their policies and not on an ideological platform. And uh, we used uh, the momentum this election gave us to, to form a more formal uh, political organization. We founded a civil association to back it up uh, legally. And then we started to organize mostly leftist young people in Budapest. We identify ourselves as a multi-tendential uh, group, uh, but we are leaning to the you know, Western Marxist tradition. Most of us could be easily identified as new leftists or post-Marxists, or we have a green social democrat and uh, more radical uh, democratic socialist uh, tendencies. It was important for us to be a pragmatic left-wing group, not one only into theory, but we want to use theory to do politics, not the other way around. I, I want to take you up on that. I read an article by Nora Schulz. I think she's a member of SICA as well. It was published in um, Merze, leftist online newspaper, refounded in 2017. And there she, pu she published an article um, in which she wrote that part of uh, the cause for the political difficulties of the Hungarian left is the neglect of organizational issues and real politics. Recently, we have started working with several others to change the situation. We have founded the Free Budapest Voter Movement together with young leftists students and more experienced movements, which is based on values, but its goals start from the real political space. This is basically the beginning of Sikra she's describing. She wrote this text in uh, 2020 and uh, Sikra, as you said, uh, was founded in 2019. Why now? Why during this moment? And does it relate to uh, the shift towards electoral politics we saw during the millennial left support for the campaigns of Jeremy Corbyn on Bernie and Bernie Sanders several years earlier? The answer to your question lies in two important factors. One, we had a very large protest when there was this uh, slave law. The law was nicknamed by the unions as slave law, which increased the uh, extra working hours very much for industrial workers. And there were huge protests against it, but uh, it transformed into a liberal narrative against Orban. First of all, we just have to uh, ensure our, li our liberal rights. And this workers' movement narrative slowly faded. And a lot of left-wing organizations took active part in uh, organizing these protests. A lot of current SICRA members felt that in order to keep this momentum for a similar situation, we need to step into politics. And the other was that currently in Hungary, if you want to enter oppositional politics, there are primaries. It's a six-party coalition opposition. And this primary method opened the space. So we could run our own candidate in a local primary before you needed a party polling at 5% to enter the parliament. So the threshold was much higher, but this primary opened up uh, a chance. Could you just specify it's a primary election for the Hungarian parliament? No, it's for the opposition because there were a lot of inner debates. Voters wanted them to form a popular front kind of thing against Orban for a long time. It could never happen because there were too many inner debates. And it resolved eventually is that uh, they decided that they're going to have primaries for the opposition. There is a very strong united bloc of Viktor Orbán's government, the prime minister. And there is the opposition, which has many, many different parties, many different ideologies. And they decided to have a primary to somehow tackle this ideological diversity of the opposition. You mentioned that the momentum currently in this popular front is to get rid of Orban. My question would be, if that happens, and it seems at least possible right now, 
Um, what would Sikra uh, attempt to do beyond that? Uh, would it work within this coalition? Would it work as a place for critique, a sort of uh, loyal opposition or not? Meaning, what are the aims behind joining this coalition? Is it just to get rid of Orban or what are your further goals? I guess we have to, to go back a few steps before answering this question. Because in Hungary, uh, the electoral system, it makes the opposition politically interested in unifying their forces. But at the same time, it makes them financially interested to, to be not united. So this makes uh, a contradiction that forms the, the dynamics of the opposition. It creates a kind of a hostage dilemma for them. Because of this situation, we, we cannot really uh, uh, think through the, the current elections because we don't really see how these dynamics will, will go, how the cards will fall. Our only aim at this point is to, to use the dynamics of the opposition to progress our position by getting our candidate elected, by making the, our organization more visible, more stable financially, working towards building an organization that can multiply by volume, by members, by financial support. So at this point, the only way for us to get out of this conflictual situation is to have a candidate go through the primary process. But we, we cannot really guarantee that we will support the oppositional government if there will be any. You spoke about progress, that the current strategy um, in terms of the upcoming election in April is necessary for you as an organization to progress, to get more financial support, to stabilize. But uh, beyond that, where would you see the aim of a leftist party, especially in relation to the goal of socialism? I think currently uh, we had to make the decision based on that in, in Hungary, uh, the sentiment is that whether you are against Orban or not, and we are trying to uh, go beyond this focus because it is very narrow, you have to take sides. And we took the side of against Orban. And it is true that the the current prime minister uh, candidate on the opposition side is very much a right-wing uh, capitalist. But uh, we think that uh, certain basic rights are, are taken away by the Orban government and it makes it harder for the working class to organize itself. And we have to ensure those liberal rights in order to achieve socialism on there or to organize the working class. To say an example, it makes it harder for unions to organize themselves. Currently in Hungary, there is a strike uh, of teachers and uh, the, the government does everything to ban this strike with, with the force of law. There is no rule of law currently in Hungary. And this is not a very inspiring role to take for socialists to protect the bourgeois rule of law. I see that. But uh, we also think that it's after Orban is defeated, I hope so, uh, it will be easier to open up this space because yeah, it, it has become mm, very bipolar, if I may say so, that Orban or not Orban. And there is just no social imagination left for global questions like capitalism or socialism. I also want to, um, to reiterate a, a question I asked earlier. Do you see the momentum you spoke of, which is currently developing in Hungary, which you try to use, do you see any um, international or global precedent for that momentum? You could argue that for the generation of the millennials or the millennial left, the political phenomena around uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders had a high impact on their political imagination. Do you see any connections there? 
I think uh, if we look at our young members and the members who are coming to Sikra, uh, they often say that they were inspired by Bernie Sanders or they realized that they are socialists because of Bernie Sanders. So there is that Im impact. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders also made an impression on me in 2016, but we also want to go beyond that. We don't want to be just populist left or this shanta uh, kind of uh, left-wing group. In relation to this international politics too, we were wondering about other Eastern European countries or I, I, I guess just Europe or, or even more globally, um, if you guys are uh, doing any sort of international work, because this focus on Orban is, of course, a national one. We are in contact with uh, regional parties. And, for example, there is the Slovenian Marxist party, Lavica, which means the left. And I think we see ourselves in a similar way that there are many kinds of leftism, there are many kinds of socialism, but the current hegemony is so right-wing that it already became a strong political statement to say you are on the left. So we have a kind of different uh, uh, political climate in the post-socialist countries. The way we see how to, to make connections with uh, foreign uh, leftist organizations is to, to look around our neighboring countries and see how they manage to get relevant in their own scene. And uh, the, way we, the way we understand the only chance for leftist politics to get some leverage is to work on uh, class coalitions between uh, different uh, sectoral organizations, uh, NGOs, feminists, leftists, anti-capitalist, green and other uh, organizations that work on specific issues. Uh, we have coalition like that uh, in the case of uh, Rojamo in uh, Croatia. And uh, we also have the seeds of that in Budapest. But we will, we will see how we can organize uh, based on that. And I think what is important for Marxists here is that uh, in post-socialist countries, they still have this old Soviet understanding of Marxism. What's interesting, for example, is that even though George Lukács is Hungarian, his most underread work is history and class consciousness. In the West, it is the most important Lukács text. In Hungary, I, I only have uh, history and class consciousness on PDF in Hungarian because it's very hard to find it printed. So there are these issues is that Western Marxism didn't really have an impact here. Uh, and I think in, in terms of theory, what is important to us is that we have to find the balance between, between saying that the, the capitalist regime change in 1989 was very harmful to our societies, uh, but also look for the future and look for new theories of Marxism. There is an interesting uh, phenomenon in post-socialist countries uh, about how socialist tradition uh, transformed after the, the regime change and the, the fall of the Soviet Union. While in the Western, in Western countries, uh, the so-called identity politics became a certain uh, issue to discuss. In, in post-socialist countries, we have the issue of, of this uh, communist or, or socialist identity politics, which is a kind of a traditionalism of, of people who uh, identify with the socialist uh, past. But uh, if, we, if we look at them from a, from a realist perspective, uh, what they are doing is, is not really uh, relevant to, to leftist politics, actually, because what they are doing uh, in an organizational uh, sense is a certain kind of marginal uh, self-expression and uh, the keeping of, of leftist traditions, which is a way of, of marginalizing left in Hungary. 
like we have this bipartisan uh, structure that is based Without two parties <laughs> yeah basically the two party system in hungary which based on the conservative authoritarian regime and the liberal opposition this uh, system of uh, this electoral and party system is working in a way to 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 marginalize leftist thought and make it basically impossible to to articulate a third position without going irrelevant and there is this phenomenon that is complemented uh, that the system basically uh, uh, permits us to express our, our leftist identities and and be as radical as we can and and go full retard on on raising the red flag and talking about killing landlords and all that but this is this is this is not really politics but just a way to to get leftist people look like uh, uh, lunatics you know in the in the second half of the 20th century our socialist leader was janos kadar and i think before 1945 he was uh, a true communist but by by the time he came into power after our uh, revolution in 1956 he was very much a conservative force and uh, orban always uses these anti-communist narratives that he he's an anti-communist uh, freedom fighter who who you know he first appeared in politics in the 90s and he was already he was a liberal in the 90s and uh, even then he used this anti-communist um, anti-communist uh, mythology and what what i sense is that even the right wing uh, has their idea of nationalism based on the culture of the second half of the 20th century by that time the socialists the so-called socialist regime has become very nationalistic and our left wing also has a false idea of what a worker is because in their imagination a worker is what uh, a worker was during the Janos Kadar regime so what i mean by is that a worker is conservative a worker is anti-feminist a worker uh, is unhealthy and eats a lot and drinks a lot and we see this in in our subculture i think a lot and i i think it's important for us to go back on the origins of the work, workers movement which was in many cases against alcohol or even absentee a feminist internationalist uh, uh, and disciplined so th- this is what we want to get back into the original idea of the workers movement previously you said there was sort of a post marxist or post leftist phenomenon and now you're saying there there's some sort of origin that you want to go back to so can you maybe talk about the two sides of this within sikra and then also what kind of origins actually you're talking about like which what would be the starting point in in your view uh, so on the post marxist thing i'm not sure i don't like this word uh, i don't i think it's uh, a bit misleading uh, is there really an origin in hungary part of the problem is that when when uh, the communists came into power or when there, there was this change after the second world war we were still a semi feudal country and there wasn't really a workers movement so in that sense there is no origin only in western europe which was already uh, proletarized uh, but hungary wasn't fully proletarized it wasn't fully in an industrial society there were already workers and workers movements under the Austro-Hungarian monarchy but it wasn't as strong I think it's the same situation with the Russian revolution because of this there is this question is there a workers movement an original workers movement in Hungary and I would say not but I think there's a, a shift between how an ideal worker was seen and how an ideal and imaginary worker is seen now Uh, if you look at old soviet posters there is this kind of strong disciplined guy uh, very masculine and 
now I think uh, there is this sentiment that a worker is someone who drinks a lot, someone who is undisciplined. I think uh, even the first one, the older one, is a bit problematic because it's there are also female workers. Uh, there are uh, many kinds of workers, workers uh, with different skin colors, etc. So I think it's in a in a way it is bad to imagine an ideal worker. Uh, about the post-Marxist question, uh, I don't think that this has been fully discussed in Sikra, but um, I don't like the wording of post-Marxist, to be honest. Just to clarify, I, I did not uh, identify Sikra as post-Marxist. Uh, I identified this uh, leftist scene in Budapest mostly. And what I mean by post-Marxist is just uh, a certain kind of, of Gramscian uh, tendency, certain kind of focus on cultural issues and uh, subcultural quality of this leftist scene. I'm not sure I agree with Noemi. Uh, what I see is this uh, anti-communism, the way uh, the current regime uses this word is basically a secret link between this today's uh, authoritarian capitalism and uh, the Kada regime by appealing to both of their reactionary stance toward uh, cultural modernism, emancipatory movements, revolutionary uh, movements and uh, workers' autonomy. Basically, as I have mentioned, this certain nostalgia towards uh, Soviet era that we have in these post-Soviet countries does not help. It thinks of itself as leftist politics, but actually it reinforces this reactionary stance of the current regime. So when we try to organize, we try to, to reinvent uh, leftist politics to to make it relevant again we have to build from scratch i guess that's the only stance uh, to these issues that we can have and it's that's not very inspiring and not very uh, uh strong but i guess that's the only radical and uh, appropriate thing to do yeah with the Kada regime, we agree, uh, and the Kada ideal of workers. It seems like since the 90s, most of at least Budapest politics or leftist politics has been around single issue cultural issues, like you said. And so I assume that the people you guys are recruiting from actually would fall into this category. And I'm wondering what kind of education is going on to, to, to deal with this, just in a basic level, or, or if there's arguments within the organization about these sorts of ideological issues. On the other side, of course, there's 1848, um, when Marx and Engels were first politicized, or at least you know around then, the Communist Manifesto, this side. Of course, there's events in Hungary in 1848. Um, it's much more... Um, the spring of nations, it sort of has a nationalist character. And then there's also the Hungarian Soviet in 1919. And so I'm wondering what you guys think is the, was that just spontaneous? Did it come out of nowhere, uh, sort of from scratch, as you say? Or what was the, the sort of international political atmosphere that allowed for a Hungarian Soviet? Because, of course, there's the German Soviet at the time, there's the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. This was more of an international phenomenon than, than certainly it appears right now. So I would say first, to the first question, we have a lot of young members who are not philosophically trained. So what do you say about uh, the Hungarian left-wing subculture in general may be true, but we also have young members who are not even aware of these issues yet um, and to deal with that we have reading groups and last year we had a reading group on Marcuse and this year we will have a reading group on Guillaume Tomás who is a Hungarian Marxist philosopher. It's funny I think also Guillaume Tomás was more published elsewhere even in neighboring countries than in Hungary but uh, last year he had a book published 
it, uh, it was his English uh, works uh, translated into Hungarian and it, it was a very successful book. So I think there is a left-wing wave uh, in Hungary, not maybe not a strong one, but there is definitely a phenomenon in young people becoming interested in Marxism. I agree. Uh, and I also add that those people who are uh, already working in these uh, single-issue uh, uh, leftist uh, organizations are already engaged. So our base uh, for recruitment uh, is not really this leftist scene, but mostly those, mostly young people who did not really uh, have uh, experience in organization or political work, but they had their self-education during the, the last decade and they became aware of social issues, they became interested in socialism, they started to, to read Marxist literature, but they did not really uh, get engaged, they did not really know where to go because this Budapest uh, scene of leftist people is not really visible generally on a national level. So we provide for them a, a kind of entry point to this wider uh, uh, subculture. And we also provide them a way to, to experience working in an organization and party discipline and a theoretical uh, education also. What about um, the uh, international origins of the working class movement, 1848? The Hungarian Soviet 1919. I think the the left wing uh, legacy of the of 1848 is uh, entirely denied. But I'm not an expert on that. About the 1919 question, it's also interesting to look at how the Stalinist Communist Party tackled this issue of 1999, and I think they also avoided the topic of 1919 later. And but. Guillaume Tomás said about 1919, which really stuck with me, is that in, in Western European countries, uh, the social democrats and the communists diverged. Uh, we all know the story of Rosa Luxemburg. But in this moment, in uh, 1918 and 1919, because of the strong re reactionary character of Hungary at that time, uh, they went in more into similar directions. You can argue whether strongly or not strongly, but it wasn't like Germany at the time. So I think that's part of how we think about that too, is that a lot of young Hungarian Marxists or leftists hate on social democrats, but we think this is forced because this is something they took away from reading about other countries. And what we want to do is a left thing platform. We think that you cross the bridge when you arrive there, basically. All right. So my last question would be, you mentioned this new uh, left wave of enthusiasm now in, in Hungary. And we also talked about phenomena like Bernie Sanders, when you said that young people come to your organization saying that, well, they're, they, they've become a socialist because of, of Bernie Sanders. Of course, we have also, looking back the last 10 years, similar or at least in part similar phenomenon on the European continent. We have uh, Podemos, for example, in Spain, 2014 and 15. We have Jeremy Corbyn. Um, we have Syriza, of course. The thing is, all of these movements I just listed, it could be argued that they have failed according to um, the standards they set for themselves. So my question would be then, what can be learned from these movements that seem inspiring to, to the Hungarian leftist youth at the moment? What can be learned from them in the context of a post-socialist country? What can be learned from their failure? How I experienced it, I think I was actually very young when these Podemos series of movements popped up and I, I wasn't even a Marxist then, but it certainly had an impact on my way of thinking. And I remember at the time, uh, there was a lot of talk. Uh, I was a member of the Green Party back then and how they understood these issues uh, of uh, Greece, for example, is that 
you have to strengthen the national states and these uh, the European Union is neoliberal and bad and and the solution lies in the national state and strengthening the welfare state through the nation state after this failure what I felt that no we need more internationalism so I think what Varoufakis does or try to do with the uh, M25 was a good idea. But because of these failures, we have less and less uh, allies to, to, to organize this European left. But I think the, what I took, took away from this is that the level of the nation state is not enough. All right, Noemi and uh, Peter, thanks a lot for uh, being on our podcast. And yeah, let's keep in contact. Thanks guys so much. Thank you Thank for you. inviting us. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Bellagi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!